few weeks in early spring, the only sounds that I heard were those of songbirds and sirens. The country battled to protect the NHS, save the lives of people struggling to breathe. The world was being forced to stop, pause, and let the planet draw a collective breath. I'm Ros Miller, a mid-career medic who found herself disillusioned about healthcare in the UK long before the lockdown of 2020. Songbirds and Sirens is for anyone interested in the biggest challenges medics face today. How to practice the basic tenets of being a good doctor, simply caring for people safely, while simultaneously delivering the latest medical advances in a world of rapidly changing technology and instant gratification. From the highlands of Scotland to the hidden doors of Harley Street, I have found two consistent things. One, medics don't wake up in the morning thinking, today I'm going to do a bad job. Exactly the opposite. We want to help people, to have the time to care for our patients and to do our very best for them. And number two, patients, regardless of whether they are down and out or a dame, all crave exactly the same things. To be seen, to be heard, and to know that for a moment in time, at least someone cares. Songbirds and Sirens is the start of a conversation society needs to have with itself. For me, it's the chance to catch up with colleagues and some friends to find out how the last few months have changed their perspectives and influenced their values. Ten years ago, Alberto Gregori invited me to join NHS Lanarkshire. What prompted me to say yes was a shared appreciation of the fact that by surrounding yourself with great people who have a can-do attitude, the impossible becomes possible. Alberto and his wife, Trish O'Connor, were instrumental in transforming the A&E and orthopaedic departments in Hare Myers, a hospital famed for treating George Orwell for tuberculosis whilst he penned part of 1984. Alberto was instrumental in introducing physician assistants to the UK and he has been a trainer and educator of numerous PAs, doctors and orthopaedic surgeons. He and Trish left here Myers to pursue an even greater goal of healthcare in Africa. As chairman-elect of World Orthopaedic Concern and also Flyspec, both charities that are taking orthopaedic healthcare to parts of Africa, Alberto discusses the impact COVID-19 and the lockdown has had on providing healthcare to some of the world's most needy. Hi, my name is Alberto Grigori. I'm an orthopaedic surgeon. At the end of my NHS career, I changed my practice to basically a small private practice. And the rest of my time, I'm actively involved in working with World Orthopaedic Concern, uh, Flyspec, Feet First, which are charities, orthopaedic charities, delivering healthcare in the most developed world, in Limic countries, as we call nowadays. And I'm a uh, Chairman-elect to start the ticket office in a year's time, all world of the concern. And basically, we spend our time doing some practice in the UK, teaching a lot in the UK, more advanced techniques, navigation, computer-assisted orthopedic surgery, and semi-active robotics. And then the rest of the time, I'm in Africa, sometimes South America, other places as needed, teaching, probably 60% of the time, and uh, 40% of the time actually carrying out surgical camps, travelling and operating on the first-come, 1st first serve bases, concentrating mainly on the African problems that we see in orthopedics, which are burns, neglected trauma, pediatric deformity, and uh, club feet. 
an infection which is uh, something that was spread throughout children and adults, uh, both from trauma and hematologists. Uh, so it's an interesting position to be in. I don't have to do all the politics of the NHS. I do what I want in terms of private practice, it's all volumes, and uh, I'm able to travel and enjoy doing just operating, meeting patients, teaching, uh, without all the hassles that uh, come uh, with politics of NHS management, etc. So there you go. I'm a happy teddy bear. <laughs> so when did you first become aware that there was this thing, coronavirus? Can you remember what? You were doing oh, where you were when it first kind of came in your radar? We knew about it at the turn of the year in early January. We were actually in Cambodia and Vietnam. And these uh, stories coming out and reports coming out of a new virus. And obviously, with the past history of SARS and MERS, we were very aware of it. And obviously, the Ebola in Africa. So we were keeping an eye on it. But where is it about the off-the-beaten track? in Cambodia, so we thought would be okay. I was actually incredibly unwell instead and had pneumonia, loss of taste and various other things. I just wonder whether we actually had it when I had it when I was in, in Cambodia. But we haven't been tested yet. We've not accessed any of the antibody tests. And then when we went into Africa, it was obviously starting to hit me. And they have famine in Italy, so it was very, very weird what was happening. And whilst we were in Africa, we were keeping an eye on what was going on. We were in Malawi, been in Zambia. And in Africa, because of Ebola, there was actually already an infrastructure for booking for temperature and arrivals, contact tracing, forms, uh, and basic assessment of people as we were coming into the airport. So we were very aware that the uh, Nothing was actually happening in Africa in February, March. But by the, towards the middle of March, it became aware that it was in South Africa, and it was just a matter of time before it came north. And we actually curtailed a trip. We were supposed to go to Zambia for the end of March, beginning of April, and then come home. And we actually curtailed the trip because it was becoming clear that there would be an issue about travelling. The various people I spoke to we had to have a decision as to whether we stayed in Malawi. We had the safe place to go with some friends and continued working because you know, there's no point being in But the decision was taken by the various agencies that it would be better to repatriate everybody that we could that was non-local. So that's what we did. End of March came back. We quarantined ourselves. We didn't travel. And shortly after we quarantined ourselves, lockdown started. So let me take you back then to sort of tail end of 2019, um, November, December. What was life like for Alberto Gregori at that time? <laughs> it's very good because I was able to do the things I wanted. We had uh, some project work in uh, Malawi with the Scottish government, looking at trauma, how it's a snapshot picture, trying to develop stable methodologies for dealing with trauma from the word go, from when they present, patients present with fractures, all the way to definitive care. And we were involved with colleagues in Malawi, in the of Health, and various other colleagues, looking at how we could invest small amounts of money, 
bit of training and improve the situation. So we're all excited about going out in uh, January, February to do some of this work. So I was collecting equipment, finding out what people needed, ordering equipment. So some of my colleagues in Zambia were looking for headlights, surgical headlights. The lighting's so bad that in operating theatres, if you have a surgical headlight that makes your life a lot easier, but they're incredibly expensive, so it's time to source some cheap surgical headlights, which are second-hand ones, which we got. And, you know, socially, able to meet friends and dinners, uh, travelling around the country. It was just lovely. And a bit of flying, which is one of my hobbies. So we were completely oblivious to what was to come. Life was at a point that you had worked very hard to get to where you were, but you would probably say that you were happy. Oh, very happy. <laughs> so then fast forward to lockdown, and, and as you say, you, the name says it, you've obviously got family in Italy. Um, how was that in the early days, sort of beginning February, March? You've still got a lot of close family members that are over in Italy. Obviously, concerns must have been risen for you at that point. Yes, because it was a little bit unknown, the behaviour of corona in China seemed to be different to the way it spread in Italy and the devastation it had in Italy. So my brother-in-law, his cousin died in his uh, mid-50s of uh, COVID late in February, so it's actually affected the family in some ways. I've got elderly parents, there's multiple comorbidities, and she went into lockdown uh, and lives alone, so for her it was incredibly hard. When you're in Africa, you can't really communicate the way that you can communicate in the UK in terms of internet, in terms of access. And my mother, being elderly, doesn't have and hasn't embraced things like the internet Zoom or Skype call them that. Uh, so she's she just very isolated. And my sister's trying to help her and maybe wait for her. But it's hard for them. See what's happening in Italy and the numbers involved in Italy. It was difficult to understand why people weren't doing something about it earlier. And that was one of the things that was sort of stuck us to the extent even when we came home. We were had a temperature check, we had contact tracing forms in Malawi, in Nairobi, we were temperature checked in Dubai, and we were asked to, if we had temperature to the authorities. We land in Glasgow and nothing. We just walked straight through, and it was as if, you know, some people talk about these analogies of war, but it's a bit of a funny war in 1939. People didn't really think it was happening to us, and after that, I think, Wishful thinking. You know, certainly the Italians were telling people they would listen that there was a disaster coming and we could have used that time to prepare better. That's one of the things that's very, very obvious from what's happened. Um, so do you think, based on the way Brits behave, do you think we locked out at the right time? Too early, too late? Probably well with hindsight uh, glasses. You know, there was no reason for us to think of it for um, what happened in Italy. There was no reason at all. Yeah. We have a similar population, similar healthcare system, and similar elderly population who often live alone, are relatively supported by either society, the state, or 
extended family, a lot with multiple comorbidities, industrial nation, everything. So many similarities and for it to just be ignored and and it was a uncertainty was the problem. I think that was part of the problem. Nobody wanted to believe it could be so bad. I think looking back, people thought, oh, we're told about stars and mares, it was going to be awful and nothing happened. And look at Ebola, nothing happened, it was all contained, and it'll be fine. I think it's an actual human nature, sort of wishful thinking and hoping it would go away. You know, the head in the sand is part of human nature, so we lost that time that we've been preparing. The countries that have done best were countries that aggressively locked down very, very early and adopted a plan and stuck to it. So even Sweden, they adopted a plan and stuck to it very, very early. Same to the ports in other countries that weathered better than we expected. So hindsight tells us that we waited too long, we dilly-dallied, we weren't sure whether we should do Herd immunity first, and then some of the numbers that came out as to how bad it would be made people scared, I think, and they said, oh, we'll lock down and say that change, of course, was a problem. It did cost us a lot of time. And then there's this overreaction, you know, building all these Nightingale hospitals and equipping them, not having equipment, you had to get hold of equipment. And again, this is part of the NHS being dismantled, and public health has been dismantled, especially in England. And then, you know, we knew, and the WHO and others have told us, that, you know, there was a possibility, a significant possibility of pandemic in various types of viruses that could come. Could it be hemorrhagic fever? Could it be a respiratory virus? Corona-type virus, influenza? We know that it's cyclical and we know that it's going to come. And we ignored all the WHO discussions two to four years ago about preparation because we were so busy doing other things. That's part of our problem that you know, we prioritized other things, thinking public health emergency. It's a chance it happens, but we'll just ignore it. And it's always public health and Preparation for disasters that if you look at modern developed countries, very few will invest what it needs to be prepared for natural disaster and for this kind of disaster, which is really, it is a natural disaster, but it's obviously an infectious disaster. Whereas in countries where they know they have tsunamis, they know they have earthquakes, there is an infrastructure often available. And realisation that we have to invest in that infrastructure now. So what happens that Italy has that infrastructure, but it wasn't suitable for walking because the infrastructure was for earthquakes, because that's a problem. And the same in, in Japan, the infrastructure is um, for earthquakes, tsunamis, and typhoons and all the things that go with that, not an infectious disease, pandemic, disaster. So we work with what we're used to and what we know is like to happen. We don't prepare for things that have a low possibility, low probability, because you know, we've got limited money, so we will spend it somewhere else. So that's what we've done wrong. And public health, what people realise, but it's, it's a 
the Cinderella specialty is the first to lose funding, low number of trainees. It's not a sexy specialty. It doesn't make a lot of money. And it's very easy to just reduce public health spending very, very quickly. Despite the fact it's actually a relatively small amount of money. So on the background of that, were the Nightingale hospitals um, right thing to do at the time? And is it, you know, the best white elephants that we've got and that we needed to get them up, we needed to get them there quickly and okay, if we'd never used them, then it was still the right thing for us to do? Or do you think it was a miscalculation or a, I don't think it was a publicity stunt, but just the horse had already bolted? Part of the problem is we didn't have enough public health expertise to tell us how this would work out. That's the first thing. If we looked at the numbers in Italy, the Italians were absolutely overrun in the north of Italy. But what was interesting was they weren't overrun in the south of Italy. And they had resources in the centre and south of Italy that weren't fully utilised. So again, we could have learned some lessons from what was happening in Italy and prepared for for example, moving patients safely, and that technology now exists, it's existed for some time, moving patients to where there was resource. And because we don't have a disaster plan, we don't have disaster equipment, you know, ventilators, uh, mobile hospitals, field hospitals. You know, sometimes we forget that the Swiss have the same capacity spare for hospital beds underground than they have and that is for planning that they did for the possibility of nuclear war. You know, it was done on a big scale. And as I say, it's like an insurance policy. You don't want to ever use it, but if you need to, you don't have time to get it ready. You know, it was very clear early on that the numbers that people had predicted weren't happening, and yet we still went ahead and built a series of Nightingale You know, if the problem was going to be as big as it was, then transporting patients would have been a much easier thing to do than to have them scattered all over the place. And again, the lack of information, lack of public health, and, you know, hopefully we'll find out the sage advice was. You know, it's not being released and who the planners were, because not all the planners thought the same. And there's other people from overseas that were telling us, you know, it's not behaving the way that, it's a disaster for everybody. There is a lot of people that have it that have been unaffected. So because we're ignorant as to what was happening, we didn't have the data, and we didn't really listen to what was happening in Italy and what happened in China, we overreacted. And we spent a lot of money, which we don't have. We didn't have. And uh, that will be an interesting problem for us to deal with later. Um, and then secondarily, and this is a horrible thing to say, but we have run the NHS on cost efficiency for many, many years, arguing that the only cost-effective intervention is one that hits a certain quality threshold. And people look at quality of life, longevity, and yet we've abandoned those very principles that we've had to use and abide by them for many years. We've abandoned those principles because of a gut reaction, oh, everybody needs to be saved. And if we were to look at, and I'm sure someone will look at, the cost of what we've done, the quality benefits in terms of qualities, 
we've actually achieved, it will be I think, very shocking how much we've spent. The long-term effects are going to be with us for a long time. So, I mean, one of the positions that we're now in, in the NHS, as we start to try and restart, you know, it takes two weeks to shut down the NHS and there's reports of anywhere between two and five years for us to get back to where we were before, which personally I find astonishing. You know, as I've said to you before, Dave's company are looking at how we try and operate in Mars, yet we can't work out how we operate in COVID. It seems to be slightly um, disjointed. We're at the stage whereby we're being asked to, as individual clinicians, prioritise patients for the restart. And there's very little guidance as to exactly what that looks like. So, for instance, for orthopaedics, we've categorised them one, two, three, four, or A, B, C, D, whatever it is. And just to try and work out where foot and ankle sits in that, I'd ask my foot and ankle colleagues what they were doing. And there's variety throughout Scotland and the UK. Ask my arthroplasty, lower limb arthroplasty colleagues. I thought, well, the safe benchmark would be let's take a primary osteoarthritic hip, 65-year-old, no comorbidities. What's that class does? Speak to three surgeons and I get three different answers. Now, I mean, it's well known that if you put 10 orthopedic surgeons in a room and ask them how to fix a wrist fracture, you get 10 different answers. But there doesn't seem to be, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe there's been something new that's come out, but there doesn't seem to be anything guide, any concrete guidance from the bodies such as BOA, college, Royal Colleges, to say, Here's your benchmark. So a 65-year-old with primary OA, no comorbidities, that's a C. You know, and from there we could then say, well, you know, somebody that's younger that's got X, Y, and Z, they will be either a B or a D or whatever. But there's no consistency. And my concern around all of this is is about in the future, so in two to four years' time, and I think it probably will be much sooner than that, when the great British public who have done what they've told and hats off to them and who have clapped every week to support the NHS. Um, When they then get told that their operation, which was already six months down the line, is now going to be delayed for another two to five years, I think they're going to be a lot less forgiving, particularly when they see that as surgeons, we've actually not been doing terribly much, if we're all honest with ourselves. And I'm not sure about the ethical position and then the legal position of that. You know, So does that then... Who is the person that should decide and are we opening ourselves up to some major legal challenges down the line? You can listen to the next episode of Alberta Provori right now. You don't need to wait until next week. Simply download from Apple or Google Podcasts or Spotify. career that spans a decade as a consultant orthopaedic surgeon, working both in the National Health Service and the private sector, I've had the privilege of meeting and treating fascinating individuals from all walks of life, from single mums and factory workers to actors, business leaders and politicians, with the occasional lord and lady along the way. This moment in time has brought fear, but also hope and most importantly, an intense desire for change. It's up to society, not politicians, not governing bodies and not the media to decide what our collective future should be. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to find out more or if you would like to contribute to the conversation, please get in touch. Mm-hmm.